I realized I was still reading it. It wasn't that long a book. And I was sitting there with it in my hands and I was reading it. And I thought, it's not that big a book. How come I'm still reading it? And then I realized in that moment, I realized I'm not reading it and memorizing it. Hi, I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Those of you that are regular listeners, you know that this podcast is about East Asian medicine and is geared toward practitioners of the art. If you're new to the podcast, welcome, and I hope that you enjoy it. You know, when you think about it, Chinese and East Asian medicine, it has a long history that's leaned on dialogue as a way both of teaching and exploring the medicine. The Huangdi Jing, the Yellow Emperor's internal classic, it was a conversation. The various commentaries over the centuries on the medical literature and the methods of practice, also, when you think about it, a sort of conversation. Not in the present moment, but over the course of generations, as doctors read, studied, and then brought their own clinical experience to the conversation. Geological, I like to think of it as another footfall on that long tradition. These days, we worry about getting through school, passing the board exams, and then getting a practice started. But there was a time here in the United States when there were no schools or national accreditation, and practicing acupuncture, it was a felony. That world was not so long ago, and as is often the case, it's difficult to understand the present moment without a sense of the history that it contains. East Asian medicine... It's not one unified system. It's more like a vibrant ecosystem than a well-ordered garden. And even though we may have very different ways of working, there's a set of core principles from which we all draw. It's curious to me how those principles both unite us and give us fodder for why we are so different. I reckon it's just the way it is when we live at the level of the 10,000 things. It's easy to see the separateness while the unity seems to remain hidden. I hope this podcast can be a forum for the many different voices of our community. Hey, here's a quick word from today's sponsors, and then we're going to get into a conversation about the practice of acupuncture over the span of decades. Hello, geological listeners. This is Josephine Spilka. I've been on a journey with Chinese medicine for over 30 years now. Since we're here in a show about communication, I want to share that one of the main ways I like to communicate is through questions. I love questions. They open us up to new places and feelings that can provoke insight and lead to all kinds of creativity. So let's consider this question today. What do you think is the most important ingredient in any prescription, whether it be an herbal prescription, an acupuncture treatment, or a lifestyle recommendation? I'll be back a little later in the show to share some thoughts on this with you. Since 1979, Lhasa OMS, the largest acupuncture supplier in the U.S., has brought you the very best in supplies from top brands such as Sarin, DBC, Evergreen, and Mayway. Fair prices, attentive customer service, and an unrivaled selection on supplies makes them a great go-to for your acupuncture clinic. Lhasa OMS helps to foster and support our acupuncture community by bringing you podcast shows like Geological that help East Asian medicine practitioners to share their clinical experience and learn from each other. 
For over 40 years, Lhasa OMS has helped both practitioners and patients by donating needles and supplies that have helped millions in need, provided schools with resources to support the training of thousands of students, and given supplies to hundreds of clinics throughout the nation. Lhasa OMS, supporting our industry and your practice with tools for your clinic and mind. I've got Stuart Cutchins with me today. Stuart is a long-time practitioner of Chinese medicine, and today we're here to talk about practice over the course of decades. You may have heard Stuart before. He was on Everyday Acupuncture Podcast, show number 33. We were talking about uh, the experience of not knowing in the midst of practicing medicine. You might want to check that one out. But today we're looking at the long arc of practice over decades. Stuart, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure to see you and talk to you. Yeah, I enjoy it too. So you've been doing this. When did you start this and whatever got you started with it? I mean, I don't think acupuncture was a career move back when you began. <laughs> no, actually it was a felony when I began. <laughs> Uh, let's see what, uh, what got me started. Do you want the long story or the short story? Hey, give us whatever story you want. We got as much time as we want. Okay. So this is my story and I'm sticking with it. I was about ready for a career change anyway. And then by a series of happenstances, I attended a class, uh, in polarity therapy that was being offered by somebody that I knew very well. He'd been a college roommate and we'd had a connection over time. And he was doing a, a workshop um, Saturday afternoon, Saturday workshop on polarity therapy. An innocent enough subject, huh? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't looking for trouble. And he took, uh, he took about an hour out of that workshop to talk about acupressure and pulse diagnosis and Chinese medical, uh, Chinese medicine theory and that sort of thing. And I thought it was very interesting. He had been a uh, college professor for some time and therefore doing this workshop, he prepared a, uh, a bibliography for us for the workshop. Mm. And on that bibliography was a uh, two or three books in English on Asian medicine, one of them being Felix Mann's Acupuncture, the Ancient Chinese Art of Healing and How It Works Scientifically. So anyway, this section on acupressure I thought was really interesting and that the whole thing and the, the theoretical construct for acupressure and Chinese medicine seemed really interesting to me. And after the workshop, I went down and went across Union Street to a bookstore that was there for many years but isn't there anymore and looked around on their shelf. And wouldn't you know it, I found a book by Felix Mann called Acupuncture, the Ancient Chinese Art of Healing and How It Works Scientifically. And I bought it, there it and was. I took it home and I started reading it and I was reading it and I was reading it. And about four months later, I realized I was still reading it. It wasn't that long a book. 
And I was sitting there with it in my hands and I was reading it and I thought, it's not that big a book. How come I'm still reading it? And then I realized in that moment, I realized I'm not reading it, I'm memorizing it. Wow. Yeah, that's what I said. Wow. wow. And I yeah. thought about that for a little bit. And I thought to myself, self, I thought, I think this is what's called a vocation. If I'm waiting for the heavens to part and the voice <laughs> of angels to come to me and say, you should be studying Chinese medicine, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think I could wait lifetimes without that happening. But I think this is the form that a vocation takes for me. Pick up a book mm -hmm. and start memorizing it. That was the beginning yeah. of the end. That was right about 19, right around 1971. And the next year I found a teacher, somewhere right around there, yeah. So as I said, acupuncture was not a career path at that time. It was a felony for anybody but medical doctors, MDs, to practice acupuncture. So my first, I don't know, my first five or six years of practice, I was a felon. It's okay. It's okay for that to come out now. <laughs> yeah, I think the statute of limitations is up. You're you're okay at this point. What? I mean, so what do you? I mean, at that point, what you just read a book, decide you're an acupuncturist and practice, or did you go to school? Did you take classes? What uh, What came next? I found uh, I found a teacher. I talked with some people, and found my way to a uh, a Japanese macrobiotic teacher named. Naburo Muramoto. And he, at that time, lived in the Bay Area, not real close to me, but he lived in the Bay Area. And he was who I found. So I started taking classes from him. And I went to see him once a week for, I don't know, about six months, I guess. And he explained to me about the five elements and about the channels and the acupuncture points and, you know, all that kind of thing and gave me an introdu you know, introductory lectures and sort of the theoretical foundations. And then, uh, and then one, <clears throat> one day I arrived and he gave me a list of empirical points. He said, if the person has a backache, this, this is the treatment you do. And if they have gallbladder pain, this is what you, you know, whatever. Anyway, he gave me a, mm -hmm. a list, a, a treatment repertory. And he said, okay, so if you do this, Sometimes it will work and sometimes it won't. Pay attention to when it works and when it doesn't. And basically shook my hand and sent me away. <laughs> okay, so that that last line, that's, I mean, I hear you say it and I go, yeah, I mean, that in so many ways, that's it. Pay attention to what works and pay attention to what doesn't. Yes, that was it. That was it. And it was the right thing to say to a person like me because, uh, that, that was my job because I knew it wasn't going to work all the time. And in fact, bless his heart, he was right. It didn't work all the time. As a matter of fact, it didn't even work all that much, but it was a starting point. And then uh, from there, I practiced for a while and then found my way to some classes that were being offered, a group that was meeting uh, at a place in San Francisco and then a class that was being offered by a medical doctor who was an acupuncturist. And his name is Peter Ekman. And ah, Peter Ekman, of, uh, he's written a couple of books. He's written a few books, 
Right. And yeah. he had not at that time written any books yet, but he certainly was interested. He had studied with J.R. Worsley. He was very interested in acupuncture and uh, Chinese medicine. And I took the class and by from his description, about halfway through the class, I asked him a question. And it was like somebody had thrown open a window. And we became friends and we were friends. We have been friends and close colleagues and dear friends ever since, starting from that point. And it so happened that he had worked in a clinic in Los Angeles with a with some Korean acupuncturists. And one of them had subsequently moved up to the Bay Area. And I got in touch with him and arranged to take classes with him. And then since that was happening, Peter and another friend that I had who was interested in acupuncture said, oh, we want to do that too. So the three of us took classes from, from our Korean teacher, Cheulu, for, I don't know, it seemed like it was for decades. <clears throat> but actually, I think the classes situation went for about a year and a half, two years, and then he and Peter and I opened a clinic together in Oakland, and we continued our studies there. I got a question. That that question that you asked him that opened the window, do you remember what it was? I have no idea. I don't. Yeah, but there, there was just a moment. It shifted. Yes. Well, what happened, <laughs> you know, the truth of the matter is that I, I don't remember. And what happened was that it threw open a window for him, and I don't know that it... I don't know that it changed everything forever for, for him, but when I asked that question, he knew that I was his new best friend. What, whatever the question uh -huh. was, you know, whatever the content of the question was, the fact that I had asked a question like that, whatever the hell it was, <laughs> that there it was. Yeah, that, there it was. He knew he had just met his friend. Yeah. Okay. So you guys have a clinic with this Korean doctor. There's no, you're still felons. Actually, at, at that point, I think we were just shifting. Right during that time, we were just shifting out of the felon stage into, the, you know, there had been an acupuncture law passed. I think actually when we opened that clinic, we weren't felons anymore. Just right about that time. No, 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 I'm wrong. <laughs> we still were. Uh, uh, so the Acupuncture Act in California had been passed, and I applied for licensure. I waited a full year because when the word went out that they were soliciting applications for acupuncture licenses, I didn't trust them. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, maybe maybe this is a trap. Yeah, right. They're, they're going to round them up. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so I waited for a year until they started granting licenses. Yeah, that's a smart move. What was the requirement in those days to be an acupuncturist? I, th I think you had to demonstrate that you had had some study that you, you had learned somewhere and then that you, uh, and you had to pass a test. Either you had to have been in practice for some period of time or you had to pass a test, which was an oral exam. And, um, I was short by about one year of how long one had to practice for grandfathering. And, I th and, and that year sort of extended into when I first started 
studying, but didn't extend to when I started practicing. And I thought about, well, maybe I could just push it a little. And I decided, well, look, this is my new career. <laughs> this is going to be my license. I don't ever, ever want the basis for my licensure to be called into question. So I played it straight and took the exam. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the requirements were not very stringent. And however stringent they were, they were I, I don't know how carefully they were enforced, but I, I just presented letters from my preceptors and uh, maybe from Peter Ekman as well, you know, just people who knew I had been in practice and that I had studied. Whole different ball game at that point. Yeah, it was, it was, it was. And part of it is, uh, you know, we sort of ran into the same thing when we were establishing the National Commission for the Certification of Acupuncturists, which is that you have to you have to start somewhere. You have to start with the presumption that there is nobody who has this credential yet. So you, you create the basis for grandfathering, and you have a sh relatively short period of time in which you apply uh, standards that, is, that are not that stringent just to establish that somebody actually is doing this thing that you want to regulate. Mm -hmm. And once you have established that there is a group of people who are credibly involved in that, and you say, okay, you are in the group, then you go from there. Then you say, well, that's all very nice for the people who started that way, but now we have a basis for establishing minimum standards of competence which is what we did at the NCCAOM. You know, the standards we started with for grandfathering were different than the standards that we established for people who were newly entering the field. Right, because you're, you're actually creating a whole new field at this point. That's right. Right, so, so you need people who have no, no national certification to participate in the creation of the standards for national certification and write and review questions for examinations that establish minimum entry-level competence. So since nobody has that credential, then you have to start with people who don't have that credential, give them the credential, and, and then enable them to work on establishing the standard. It's kind of a bootstrap operation, I guess. It is exactly, and that's the way everything starts. Yeah. Every every profession gets pulled up by the bootstraps. Well, actually, you know, when I think about it, and I think about practicing, I mean, by the time I came around to it, the NCCA was there, you know, the exams were there. Heck, I actually went to an acupuncture school. But there's always that sort of bootstrapping yourself into being able to do it, right? Through your education, through your grit, through your, you know, stick to -itiveness. The first acupuncture school that I attended, I was... Uh... I got a doctor of oriental medicine degree from, but I was the, uh, the dean of the program that awarded that degree. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I mean, there just wasn't another way. That, right. was just, that was just how it could happen. Yeah. So I want to, I want to come back to your Japanese teacher who basically said, Sometimes it will work. Sometimes it won't. Shakes your hand and sends you off. You're a Zen practitioner, so you know a lot about failure. And I want to get into, I want to ask you about how we can best learn from our clinical mistakes. Because 
by God, we're going to make them. And there's no way around not making them. How do you unpack the learning from a situation when you're caught up in all the noise and worries of self-criticism and, oh, what am I going to do? And I'll never get this. And what's going to happen to my business? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, well, I'd like to start in a slightly different point in, in that question and say that when uh, my son was really little, he was right about two years old, we were playing together and uh, he was really interested in my Swiss army knife because that was what kind of kid he was. And we, he got out the, uh, he got out the toothpick out of it and he was trying to put the toothpick back in and it didn't work and uh, he couldn't get the toothpick back in, but he wanted to. And so I showed him where to put the toothpick back into the Swiss army knife and he tried, but he had it backwards and he was trying to put it in. And after two or three attempts, he turned to me and said his first complete English language sentence, which was, why doesn't this work? Oh, wow. And I knew at that point, you know, sometimes we don't <laughs> know about the genetics of our presumed offspring. I knew this is my son. <laughs> <laughs> and that everything was going to be all right. <laughs> so, so I think that's, that's, the basic, that's the basic question. Why doesn't this work? That was... Uh, Many, many years ago, I remember reading, I believe it was the book that I was reading at the time was The Function of the Orgasm by Wilhelm Reich. And, uh, and that was his basic question. He had been trained by Freud. He was devoted to Freud and to Freudian analysis. And he had these difficult patients and he was doing analysis and he wasn't getting anywhere. And his basic question was, why doesn't this work? I believe in it. I believe in the theory. I know that it's powerful. It seems to explain what I need to know. Why doesn't this work? And that I think that's it. We just have to be willing not to blame ourselves, not to blame our patients, not even to blame the theory, but just to keep asking the question, why doesn't this work? And if we're willing to sit with that question, then we have the possibility of of understanding better. After I, when I studied with Mr. Muramoto, I was not a Zen student. I subsequently became a Zen student. I think studying with him was part of what interested me in in that range of possibilities. But after I had become a serious Zen student and had actually taken a few years off and had sat in a monastery for a few years and, you know, gotten trained as a Zen priest and had not practiced oriental medicine for six years. Mm -hmm. And then I left the monastery and I went back into practice. One of the first things that I realized as the time approached to go back into practice was that I had forgotten much of what I knew. The, at the time when I stopped my practice, I had reached what I thought was a relatively satisfactory level of, please excuse the term, I don't mean it to be arrogant, a reasonably acceptable level of mastery. I knew what I was doing. I knew how to do it. I could go forward. And it was based on having a substantial amount of information and a, uh, a bookload of theories on which to draw to meet situations. Six years later, after not having practiced at all, I went back into practice and people started coming to see me and I didn't know what to do. 
I couldn't remember. I, I, I remember going on my way uh, to my first appointment when I started back, back into practice. My friend Brian LaForge asked me to cover his practice one afternoon in San Anselmo. I was living, I was living still at Green Gulch, but I was not a resident. I was living there because my wife was still the head of the meditation hall, so I was living with her. Uh, so this was my first day back, covering Brian LaForge's practice for the afternoon, and and I'm trying to remember about how to be a practitioner. And one of and I realized I don't even which side of the table do I stand on. I, I mean, it was it was that basic. I mean, where where to even begin? Right. How do I even greet someone when they walk in the door? Yes, right. Exactly. So I did I did make it through through that somehow. But anyway, we were driving. Uh, if you know the territory, you know that if you don't go on the freeway between Mill Valley and San Anselmo, which is where I was headed, there is a, a, a hill, a very tall hill. In fact, it's called Camino Alto, which you know, the, which is the high road. Uh, and uh, so we were driving up Camino Alto, and in my family, I always drive. But that day, I asked my wife to drive because <laughs> I was just so nervous. What am I going to do? These people are going to come with problems, and I don't, I don't, I don't even remember which side of the table to stand at. So she was driving, and we were driving up Camino Alto, and I was getting sweatier and sweatier. And right at the top of Camino Alto, this is this is so dramatic. <laughs> right at the top of Camino Alto, it suddenly came to me that when people come to see me, when they come to see us. They come with their problems, and we think we're supposed to solve their problems, but they also come with the solution to their problems. <laughs> and that what I have to do is not just not just listen to the problems and then I solve their problems. I have to listen to their problems and listen to the solution, listen for the solution to their problems, which they bring with them. And I started breathing again. <laughs> And I did somehow get through that day and then wound up setting, setting up a clinic for myself and having my own patients to treat. And what I found, and I, I credit Zen practice with being able to do this, it was, I was still in the same position. You know, I was studying and I was remembering more and learning more, but I was still in the same position that I was now closer to what it had been like when Mr. Muramoto had said, here are some things to do. Pay attention to when they work and when they don't work. And, and I was in that situation. And I didn't necessarily anymore know, just know what I should do. So what I found myself doing was sitting with my patients and letting them tell me what their problem was and just letting them talk until a moment came when by whatever means it was, and I can't tell you what the means were, whatever means it was, I felt ready to act. I didn't even necessarily know what I was going to do, but I felt ready to act. And then I would get up and, and start treatment. And there was, there was something that was guiding me. And, and my understanding of it then and now was that they were guiding me, that they had given me enough information so that given my many years of study and you know various things that I had studied and knowledge of 
of points and channels and different different uh, medical theories and so forth, that somehow something would coalesce out of my informational background and my interaction with them, and something would coalesce into a treatment. And it wasn't that when I stood up to give them treatment that I already knew what that was. It just emerged in the situation. Wow. I... I've had some similar experience. I mean, people come to us because they've got problems. Otherwise, why would they bother walking in the door? Right. And not only they have problems, but they have problems that nobody's been able to solve for them. That's right. Or maybe they've gotten worse as a result of the treatments right. that they've had. Right. The things that they've saw. I mean, we see lots of refugees of the conventional medical system. Right. We see everybody's failures. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea and and i've seen in fact it gives me great hope it's partly why i think i can keep doing this if my job is that i always had to know exactly what to do and be the guy who fixed people i would be running a different kind of business i'm sure because number one i'm not that smart and number two i, I can't deal with that kind of pressure that wouldn't work right who can <laughs> well I, I mean there might be some people who can i don't know but i know that i'm not built for that the thing that's so surprising and wonderful about this work is, at least if you, I guess if you do it long enough, and, and I've been doing it long enough, I've had a few glimpses, there are moments where I recognize that they've just said something and they've given me the key on what to do. This is where we start, right? So they've got this issue, oh, I'll just pick one with asthma, Right. I've got this asthma and I'm on these inhalers and I'm seeing all these doctors and this is what everyone says. And my Facebook group says I should do this. And my mom says I should do that. And, you know, I'm just so sad because my dog died. I can barely breathe. Right. I go, <laughs> oh, great. Here's where we start. Yes. Let's see. You know, maybe this is right. Maybe it's not right. I mean, you know, on one hand, oh, look at me. I'm a clever Chinese medical practitioner. I identified lungs and grief, but it's not that it's just, it's a hint. It's a clue. Oh, what if we start going down this path? Let's see what happens. Yeah. It's a door that swings open. It's a door that swings open. You're sitting in a, in a darkened room and a door swings open and you say, looks like there's light over there. There's light over there. And it just, it just makes sense. You, it, you, yeah. you feel it, you know, oh, okay. There's a door. Let's go through it. Let's go through it. And I think it really is true. People, people's problems contain the solution. If we're able to somehow sit with it long enough, listen to it openly enough. Sometimes you got to wait a treatment or two or three before some of this stuff emerges, you know, I got it. First, you got to build a relationship so they don't go running away. Right. Right. And it, it helps to be able to be helpful. And, and that's, that's part of what I wanted to say in terms of the conversation we've been having, you know, I've been talking about knowing how to fix people and being able to fix people and everything. And, and that isn't it at all. Really what it is, really what I understand to be our job is to free up people's self-healing capacities and to, so that we help them optimize their, uh, their capacity for self-correction and self-healing. And 
that kind of process takes time and and often unfolds over time. It isn't like, oh, they walk in and we do something and that just happens. So sometimes it really takes a while before that unfolds. And even after it begins to unfold, we have to be available to help guide them through that, uh, through that journey. But, it, but it's never my perspective. I don't want to tell anybody else what they should think, but my perspective on it, it's never us fixing people. It's really always us helping people. And um, I think, actually, I might have told you this story once before that I got a call from someone once who had heard that I had helped people stop smoking. And he called me up and he said, can you make me stop smoking? And I responded, no, I can't. And I wouldn't if I could, because I don't want that kind of responsibility. I don't want to be in the place of controlling other people's lives, controlling how they think and how they feel and what they want and what they do. I just want to help them. I want to help them along on their path. And if their path is to stop smoking, I actually know a thing or two that has often, although not always, helped people in the, you know, in the considerable task of stopping smoking or stopping other things that were difficult to control. But I, I definitely don't ever, ever want to be in the position of controlling other people's lives. No, thank you very much. Hi, Josephine here again. I hope you've been enjoying this episode and considering my question, what is the most important ingredient in any prescription? You might think that what I'm about to say is completely counter to all you've learned about medicine. But in my experience with myself, my clients, and my students, this is the one thing that is the most true. The most important ingredient in any prescription is you. I don't mean you, the ego, or the persona, you, the acupuncturist. No, I mean you, the living, breathing, sensing being who has feelings, perceptions, and thoughts arising in every moment. When you are listening to a person's pulse, looking at their tongue, or hearing them speak, what is arising inside you will be the most important guide for creating a powerful prescription of any kind. No matter where you are in your journey now, I wonder if you feel connected to your own knowing, to your own power as a practitioner. What might you need now to feel more connected, more confident, more strong in your own practice? I'd love it if you'd talk to me. Email me at josephine at essencepresence.com or go to essencepresence.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Now, let's listen to the rest of today's conversation. I think this is a, this really gets at, in many ways, the difference between conventional medicine and what we're doing. Right, with conventional medicine, it's about, we got this thing, we're going to control, we're going to make this other thing happen, right? With a pharmaceutical, or I mean, sometimes the surgery is, is necessary, but, but it, it's very much a system of control. And... And ours is a whole different thing because we're inviting something to unfold from within. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And, and you're right. Sometimes pharmaceuticals are 
essential, and sometimes uh, surgery is is the life-saving intervention, and sometimes antibiotics are what save the day, and these are all miracles. And sometimes you just need a miracle because the person's self-healing mechanisms are not adequate. They are overwhelmed. When Mm -hmm. somebody's self-correction is overwhelmed, then they need some kind of miraculous intervention. They need steroids. They need antibiotics. They need surgery. They need some really powerful uh, pharmaceutical medication to help bring an out-of-control situation into control and uh, sufficiently into control so that they can optimize their their ability to cope with their lives. And sometimes our medicine takes us further along the lines of being able to restore out-of-control situations than others. But definitely, I'm I'm a firm believer that there is a place for all of those all of those kinds of things, and and I am not, I am not a critic of the operation of uh, Western medicine. You know, uh, I don't criticize what they have or what they can do. My uh, my reservations about it are twofold. One is that they are not always careful enough in detailing their diagnosis. Sometimes they just leap to solutions without availing themselves fully of the kind of testing that is supposed to guide their treatment. That's one thing. And the other thing is a related issue of just overusing miracles. You know, oh, I can do miracles, so I guess I'm God and I, I, should, just do, I, I should just do miracles all the time. Sometimes people don't need miracles. Sometimes people need actually to be kind of left alone to work things out. Maybe they need some guidance. But they they definitely don't need to be messed with in in any kind of serious way. In addition to uh, to practicing Oriental medicine, I I also have studied and uh, and practice a kind of uh, osteopathic manual therapy, a couple of different kinds actually. And and I want to say right now, I want to lay blame where it where it most most certainly belongs, which is, this is all Dan Bensky's fault. He just, <laughs> he, he just made so much trouble in my life. Uh, he got me involved in studying cranial sacral therapy. <laughs> Do you have time for a story? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bring it on. I'd like stories about trouble. Yeah. He came to San Francisco for a class. I think if I remember correctly, it was a class in Koryo Suji Chim, you know, uh, Korean hand acupuncture mm. that was being offered by, uh, by its founder, Tae Yu. Who I think is a felon, wasn't he? Or was, would... uh, I don't think if, if he was a felon, I, I don't know what the felony was, but he's, he certainly was uh, an enigmatic character. In, including he seems to have disappeared from sight, but I don't think that he disappeared into a prison. As far as I know, he just seemed to have dropped out of sight in the United States where he was a really big presence for a while and is just no longer to be seen. Anyway, I don't, I don't know that he was, there was anything wrong with what he had done in his life. But, um, but anyway, we took that class and Dan came, flew down for the class. And then afterwards, I offered to take him to the airport. And he accepted, but there was there was a time delay in the, before his flight. So I was talking, and I told him something about I, I think that I was 
having ringing in my ears, I think was the problem. And he said, oh, well, uh, let's try this. And, <laughs> and he gave me a cranial treatment, my first cranial treatment, I didn't even know. So he sat in the back seat of the car and I sat in the driver's seat and I, I leaned the seat all the way back and he gave me a cranial <laughs> treatment in the car. <laughs> uh, and I had never been touched like that. I had never felt anything like that. And when he was done, I said, what was that? And he told me. What was that? And I, yeah. and I said, where do I get it? <laughs> and he told me. So I started studying uh, uh, cranial sacral therapy. And then I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, I was having a conversation with him. And uh, he said something about he was going to study with his teacher. And I said, who is your teacher? And he said, uh, Jean-Pierre Barral, you know, and it was visceral manipulation. So, okay, this is Dan's teacher. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to study with him too. I better check it out. Yes, so I, I did. I checked that out. Anyway, I have uh, on and off for, I don't know, last 25 years or 30 years or something like that, uh, studied visceral manipulation with Jean-Pierre Barral and, and or his uh, various associates. And that's been an important part of what I've learned. The, sort of the basic diagnostic technique and the fundamental treatment technique in visceral manipulation is called listening. You start by listening. You put your hands mm. gently, but kind of securely, you know, gently, but with genuine contact on somebody's body, and you listen to what happens. Where, where does this go? Where am I pulled? Where is something strange happening? You know, where, where is the most abnormal tension in the body? And you just listen, and then when you find your way to where it is, then you kind of poke in a little bit nothing too much. You poke in a little bit and you listen and you see what the body wants to do and then you help it. Whatever it wants to do, you help it do that. That's also the sensibility of uh, cranial sacral therapy. This is all the most powerful technique for both of these, these approaches, uh, healing approaches, is induction. You find out what does the body want to do that it can't quite get to the bottom of, and then you help it do what it is it wants to do and get to the bottom of it so that it can move on to the next thing. So it doesn't have to be stuck where it can't come to resolution. So it's helping bodies, helping people come to the resolution of problems in which they are stuck and they can't find their way all the way through. That's how I see that kind of manual therapy. And in some sense, in some important sense, that's how I see my job as an acupuncturist as well. Well, I, hearing you tell the story a little earlier about coming back from the Zen training, you're going to your first day at an acupuncture clinic. Oh my God, what do I do? Well, you go and you listen. Exactly. Go and you listen. You see what's there. Right. That's how you find out what the problem is, and that's how you find out what the solution is. You don't necessarily listen 
in exactly the same way for both of those things, but it's all listening. You know, sometimes you listen with your ears, sometimes you listen with your eyes, sometimes with your hands, you know, whatever, it's all listening. And it, it all involves being, uh, being very respectful of what this person, what this suffering person has to tell you by some means or another because they want to tell you the whole thing. They want to tell you how they're suffering and they want to tell you how, how they can get out of suffering. They might have a story, a narrative for how they have to get out of suffering. Or how they got there in the first place. How they got there in the first place. But as often as not, the narrative that they offer you is incorrect. But there's something about it that might help you understand what more deeply is the issue. You know, like sometimes I, I practice uh, Fukushin, you know, Japanese abdominal diagnosis. So I do that a lot, you know, and if I press on somebody's belly and I get to a hard spot, they say, oh, oh, I had lunch an hour ago. Right. <laughs> That's my lunch. <laughs> or or uh, I, you know, I press and there's something tight or sore and they say, oh, I was, uh, I was doing Pilates and uh, yesterday and I, maybe I did a little too much. You know, they have a story and the story isn't the right story but their body is telling you a right story. And when they say, oh, uh, that's bothering me because I had lunch, you know, two hours ago, it must've been something I ate. You know, I mean, it's conceivable that it's true, but it almost never is. Almost always the story they have, for example, being a little bit of a wise guy, not a horrible wise guy, but a little bit of a wise guy. You know, if somebody says, oh, I was doing Pilates, I said, I press on the other side. I said, were you doing Pilates on this side too? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh, so, you know, I mean, a certain part of, of a certain amount of what it takes to get through the day is kind of disarming people's defense mechanisms the defense mechanisms that they mount to prevent you from getting too close to the truth. <laughs> and and their, narrative, their narratives often are an important part of that. The narrative function isn't, it isn't all against us. The narrative function operates really fast. I've never, I haven't tried to verify this for myself exactly, but I have had some verifying experience that this function of developing a story happens so fast that we don't even see it happening. We don't even see it coming. And uh, somebody told me once that if you have some kind of sensory experience before you even cognize the sensation, before you are aware of the sensation, the part of your brain that develops stories is already constructing the story that explains it. And the closest that I've had to seeing that for myself <laughs> is not exactly that fast, but sitting in uh, the meditation hall at Tassajara when I was, uh, when I was a student there. I think, I think this happened when I was the head student, the Shuso, uh, at Tassajara. And I was sitting in the meditation hall and there was a noise on the deck, you know, the porch outside the meditation hall. It sounded like footfalls. 
And as soon as I heard it, I just, I knew who, who it was. And it was somebody who was like typically late and they were screwing up a lot and they were about to throw open the door and walk in, you know, 15 minutes late for the beginning of the Zazen. And I was already upset with them. And <laughs> I know this doesn't sound very much like the head student, but anyway. Actually, it sounds exactly like the head student. <laughs> <laughs> this was what was going on immediately. I mean, I was still hearing that sound, the sound that I took to be their footfall. That, that sound was just entering my consciousness, and I already had this story going. And then a moment later, it changed. And the story evaporated. The story no longer was adequate to what I was hearing a half a second later. But in the first half second, this whole story and all of this history and all of this, all of this drama unfolded just like that, unbidden. I wasn't trying to do that. That just happened. Mm -hmm. And so that was a situation where I... I was conscious of the sensation. You know, I, I heard a sound and I knew I was hearing a sound. That's how fast that whole story came up that was totally fabricated. And apparently the story making part of the brain is even faster than that. It was probably working on it before I even knew I was hearing something. It's faster than the speed of thought. Exactly. Exactly. I've seen this thing too with the way people make sense or, or attempt to make sense. And I, and I, my suspicion is that's kind of what we do as human beings. We're, we're trying to make sense to ourselves. We're trying to make sense of our experience. Uh, it, it could be something as simple as somebody presses on our belly and we go, Oh, that was, that was because of Pilates. The mind really wants to dig in and, and have a sense that it knows what's going on. And, and that, that sitting in that place of there's something happening and, and holding a little space. I'm not sure I really like that term. It sounds a little new agey, but it's the best I can come up with just to see what, just to see what all is in there, including the story. It can be helpful. I think our patients bring us stories. Sometimes it's the stories that they've been telling themselves that are a part of the problem. And, and, and as they start to get better or feel better or change some habits or something happens, their story starts to change. And as their story changes, their experience of their body and themselves changes as well. Yes, yes, those things are all intimately, intimately tied together. It's, uh... It's one continuous package and you press anywhere on it and something something at the other end of the situation moves. So let me toss this question out to you. I get, I get this a lot. In fact, I suspect the listeners hear this a lot too. Somebody gets off the acupuncture table and something's very different and they go, wow, it's like the pain is gone or this is really dramatically different or I see better, whatever it is. And they go, is this real or is it just in my mind? And I find this to be a really curious question. And the reason I find it curious is because when the mind makes the body well, we call it placebo. When the mind makes the body ill, we call it hypochondria. 
The question I've got, and it's a question, I don't have an answer. I'm going to throw it out to you. What's up with this mind piece? Because it seems to be really powerful and central in a lot of healing. <laughs> well, uh, people ask me sometimes about mind-body connection. And when people ask me about the mind-body connection and whether there is a connection between mind and body and that sort of thing, when, when that kind of question comes up, then my response is, have you ever had the experience of your mind and your body being separate? <laughs> does your mind does your does your mind go someplace and your body goes you know goes out to the diner for lunch while your mind I mean what what do you suppose is the difference between your mind and your body where do, where is the separation line how do you distinguish between mind and body I think that that's a very important point and also there are a couple of things about the way you frame the question that help suggest the answer to it. The origin, as I understand it, I have not independently verified this, but somebody told me <laughs> uh, that the origin of the term hypochondrium, hypochondriac, dates from, uh, I think it was the 19th century, when physicians were noticing that there were a lot of people who had kind of vague complaints and and it was just like they couldn't figure out what was wrong with these people and it just seemed like these people were just complaining they were just said something wasn't going well in their life or something like that and they just had a lot of complaints and uh and somebody or somebody's noticed that a common thread in that was that they would complain about discomfort in the area under their rib cage in what we know as the hypochondria hypochondrium and that was how the term hypochondriac was coined it referred to these people who had these vague non-physiological complaints and they didn't feel well and their lives weren't going well and they were uncomfortable and bad sleeping and everything like that and they had vague pains in their body and everything. And of course, we can understand, particularly from our perspective, they all had liver problems, just undiagnosed liver problems. Those are the hypochondriacs. Those are the people who have organic problems that we can't diagnose yet. And so that's hypochondria. And as for placebo, what does placebo mean? Placebo refers to becoming comfortable, right? And uh, what part of healing is not involved with placebo? In fact, I remember years ago talking with one of our colleagues who uh, does research on this topic at Harvard and uh, Harvard-related uh, medical facilities who said that actually a substantial portion of all healing was placebo. In order to get a drug through the FDA to get it approved, you just have to prove, you have to demonstrate that it has a statistically significant better effect than placebo. You start with the placebo effect and all you have to do is get statistically better than that. And you, you know enough about statistics to know that it doesn't take very much 
to get st- statistically significant better than anything. Well, there, my fellow Missourian Mark Twain used to say, there's liars, damned liars, and then there's statisticians. <laughs> right. Oh, so there's one, one more thing, a piece of research that he told me about in one of our conversations about placebo, which is that the, there was some indication that the effectiveness even of prescription medications were affected by the circumstances un, under which the prescription was received. You know, if you just get a prescription in the mail, you know, or gets dropped off in your mailbox or something like that, or there's a kind of scraggly looking guy sitting in a torn sofa who gives you a prescription, is the effectiveness, the, the measurable effectiveness of that prescription is different from receiving it from somebody who is sitting at a desk wearing a white jacket and writing it in illegible script on a specially prepared note. And the people who have had the patience to do studies on this kind of thing, especially prepared printed notepad, uh, people who've done research on this kind of thing, he told me, have demonstrated that the outcomes of the therapy will vary depending on which of those experiences you have. And you can predict which one, which one has higher level of effectiveness. The, uh, you mentioned the prescription pad. I'm, I'm thinking of a brief amount of time when I was in Taiwan and I was studying with this uh, Dong-style acupuncturist who did all this other really wild stuff some kind of folk medicine thing where he people come in and they talk and he'd like write something on a piece of paper and then he'd burn it and make some kind of hand motions and this and that and blah, 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 blah. And I remember looking at that and going, oh man, I, what am I doing here? Right. I mean, it just seemed totally bizarre, but as you tell the story of research that's been done, that shows someone in a white coat sitting behind a desk, writing on a special piece of paper can change the effectiveness of a drug, I'm thinking, oh man, maybe I should like buy some flash paper so I can like write on it and, you know, burn it in front of my patients. It might help. Yes. Especially if your patients are acculturated in a shamanic culture. Mm-hmm. Most of mine aren't actually. I, I, the, the people looking for the shamans, I send them somewhere else. <laughs> you must be a student of the, the Neijing. Well, I would say I'm a poor student of the Neijing. I just don't know much about shamanism. And so when people come in and they think because I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner and I'm supposed to know something about it, I, I want to dissuade them very quickly from that I know anything about it. Right. <laughs> right. I, 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 know, I know what you mean. On the other hand, it's important that you appreciate the, the significance of the rituals that you perform including washing your hands, Mm -hmm. sterilizing your needles, preparing a a clean space, you know, a purified space for them. You know, all all of those things make a difference to the outcome because uh, although you are activating the self-healing mechanisms in their body, I am here to reassure you that their bodies are not very far away from where their minds are. And I want to say, I would like to add to that, 
I think it is, it's very distasteful to me and uh, kind of terrible when I see people trying to exploit the manipulation, you know, to manipulate people's attention and manip manipulate their understanding of the relationship in a way to create an aura of authority and power in those situations. But at the same time, I think that there is already a certain amount of authority and power in our, it, invested in our relationship and uh, that is expressed through rituals. And that the, the ritual effect of how we practice actually helps protect our patients and us from that kind of, uh, what would you say, the corrosive effects of power differential in these relationships. So one of the things that we can do as practitioners is be really attentive to our space, what we're doing, how we're doing it. I'm, and I'm struck too, I mean, this last thing that you said about the, 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 the practitioner using the power differential really for their own self-gratification or, or, for, or for getting some kind of control over the patient. It, it, I mean, it seems like so many tools, so to speak. We can, we can use it to be very helpful, but we can also use it in ways that, that's actually not helpful to the people that we're trying to help. Yeah, you see that very often this happens in context of uh, spiritual communities that the, that the leaders in the spiritual community will use their spiritual authority to exploit their students. And that's, that's obviously horrible. And, but the same thing can happen in, and does happen frequently in medical relationships. And part of the, part of the uh, ethics of, of practice as a physician of any sort is not 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 to exploit the power differential inherent in the situation to gain anything for oneself other than to get one's bill paid, <laughs> you know, but, but not to get anything. This is not for our gratification. An important aspect of all of this, both in spiritual practice and in medical practice, is to understand that the authority that we have and the ability that we have to help people doesn't belong to us and isn't there for our enrichment. We're, we're not supposed to be getting anything special out of it beyond being in the situation of being able to help people. And if we find helping people gratifying, then we can, I think we're entitled to that kind of gratification. But to try to get anything more than that out of it is actually betrayal of the trust that our patients place in us. It's a point well taken. Thank you. <laughs> patients often will come in, especially if things have gone well, and they'll say, wow, thank you. You fixed my XYZ, whatever it is. You fixed it. And, and there is a part of me that wants to go, yeah, I kind of got this stuff down. But I know if that part comes out, I am asking for trouble because you're making trouble. I'm making trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm inviting it. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's this really tender place where we stand where on one hand 
recognizing that people are appreciative. And on the other hand, recognizing that we're here to sort of assist in midwife, so to speak. And it's really important for our own health and well-being to recognize that the healing really comes from them. It doesn't come from us. Right. The problem comes from them. The solution comes from them. And the unfoldment of the healing process is theirs. It isn't ours. We just, we just have the good fortune to be able to be present for it, to witness it, and to uh, be midwives for it, to, to help it along in its unfoldment, help them along in unfolding it for themselves. And it's really for their benefit. Well, that seems like a good place to uh, put a bookmark in it for today. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, it has been a great pleasure talking to you. And, uh, and I look forward to the next opportunity. Maybe, who knows, you might even come to California again someday. You never know. You never know, do you? If and when that happens, I look forward to seeing you because we always have so much fun. <laughs> Me as well. Okay. Okay. And thank you, Michael. Thank you, Stuart. All right. That's it for today's conversation. Hey, if you guys like what you're hearing here, if it's helpful to you, please tell your friends about it. Also, I'm kind of curious. I can look at the download statistics for this podcast and I see, obviously, there's people in North America that listen to this. There's folks in Australia, Russia, Japan, China. Oh, China, imagine that, China. And I'm wondering where it is that you're listening to this podcast from. So if you don't mind, if you're listening to this right now, pull out your phone or maybe go buy a postcard. Take a picture. Let me see where it is that you listen to Geological from. You can email it to me. The address is michael at geological.com, or you could send me a postcard. Wow, postcard, that is so old school. I'd love to have that. You'll find the address over on the website. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.